I've been using amphetamines for the past three years. When I was 17, I weighed 210. Now I weigh 168. I went to the doctor's office because mom thought maybe I had a, a weight problem. The doctor gave me some amphetamines. Well, I, I, I took a few too many and, and felt groovy. So I started taking too many every day. Speed gave me confidence, like I could do just about anything. <laughs> my, my biggest trip on speed was repairing radios. I, I'd start out with one radio, and then I'd have to take another radio apart to get a tube or something. And before I knew it, I had a second radio torn apart and would have to get a third radio. And I'd tear that radio apart, too. And then I'd fall asleep. By the time I'd fallen out, I had ruined three radios. Dad does drugs. Dad does drugs. Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Dad Does Drugs. That's a landmark of sorts, I'm sure. And I did some press on the BBC this week talking about the podcast, so maybe it's going stratospheric. Anyway, I was nervous about it. It's quite a formal, newsy environment at the Beeb, less relaxed than the podcast world when it comes to talking about illegal activity. And I work there, so although I was talking as a guest, not a BBC person, it did feel quite exposing. A bit like shitting in your own backyard. And you can't say that on the BBC. Anyway, it went well, and I got some great exposure for Janine Milburn and the great work she's doing, and I think it'll have started some conversations around dinner tables that might otherwise not have heard it. Have a listen. Festival season gets underway this weekend. Last year, Mutiny Festival was closed a day early after two fatalities from drug overdoses. Now renamed, the event returns as South Central Festival in Portsmouth tomorrow. Janine Milburn, the mum of Georgia Jones, who died aged 18 last year, will be going to South Central to give out drug advice and information to festival goers after spending months working with the festival organisers to make the event safer. As far as we know, with Georgia, she took two tablets... Did she take them both together? Did she take one after the other? Don't know. But what they do suggest is that if you're going to do it, you're supposed to take a quarter of a tablet or a nibble off the tablet, see how you act after an hour, and then maybe take a little bit more. You're not supposed to put these things straight in your body. They're high strength, what she had. So not only did she maybe double dose herself, but she double-dosed herself with something extremely high anyway. So she had no chance, really. Okay, if you're now racking your brains as to what on earth that was, it was just say no. It was Grange Hill back in 1986... That was the song that they did then. I mean, do you remember? I remember so well the storyline. Um, one of my colleagues, Bob Diggles, though, has uh, more or less actually same generation as me. Bob, hello, good morning. Morning. Morning, morning. Um, you are more or less the same generation growing up watching the Just Say No of Grange Hill, aren't you? Yes, of course, yeah. I remember the Zamo storyline when uh, inspired all of that with his uh, heroin addiction and then they all sang at us, yeah. 
Yeah, so, so remember that one. And it was one of those things like, can you talk about it with your family? Um, Now, we're talking to you this morning because the just say no, that message that we've had on and off since, what, 1986, uh, you feel a little bit differently about. You think that's not quite enough. Um, And the reason we're talking about it this morning is because a year ago this weekend... Two people died at Mutiny Festival in Portsmouth after taking ecstasy. Now, this is now renamed South Central, and the festival returns to the playing fields tomorrow. Um, Bob, tell me what you have done that you think is is the right thing for you to do with how to talk to your children. Yeah, I've started making a podcast, and it's called Dad Does Drugs, and I use my uh, interest in that world because I cycled past uh, Mutiny Festival last year and I interviewed people as the festival was closed on the Sunday and that and then incident at best of all the year before mm. and a few things sort of seemed to kind of coalesce in my mind and I thought I know quite a lot about the drug world would I want to send my children off to a festival or on holiday to somewhere like Ibiza when they're 18 without any knowledge just say no doesn't tell them anything it says, I think drugs are bad. It says all drugs are bad. All drugs are the same. It doesn't tell them anything about whether alcohol is more dangerous or uh, cannabis is more dangerous or even how to negotiate what happens if someone has taken those things and it's gone wrong and you don't know what to do. Oh, will I get arrested if I take them to a paramedic? And I just think I want to talk to them. I want to have a good relationship with my kids. They're growing up fast mm. and I don't want to get to those difficult life uh, choices and life decisions and have them do it all on their own without coming to talk to me. So whether it's sex and relationships or whether to get on the back of a boyfriend's motorbike, how to be safe online, uh, what to do about uh, drugs and so on, I want to hopefully not be too uncool that they won't come and talk to me about it. And so I started making a podcast and I've interviewed all sorts of people, festival organisers, criminologists, uh, the police, politicians, to talk to them about what the drug landscape of the UK looks like in 2019. And then each episode, I play that interview that I've done to my son. He's 13 years old and we have a chat about it. I've also managed to involve my other children a little bit as well. So if you're thinking, what on earth do you say to children about drugs? Um, have a little listen. So there's a bit at six-year-old level for my daughter, mm-hmm. Hattie, 11-year-old level for Coco, and then my teenager, Credence. Do you know what a drug is? Is it something about smoking? Yeah, cigarettes would be a drug. A drug basically is a medicine that you might put in your body that has an effect on your body. Uh, marijuana is the Mexican name for cannabis. So have oh. you ever heard of cannabis? Yeah. Didn't we have that in our loft? Yeah, 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 you're right. So when we moved in here, the people either before us or the people before them had been growing cannabis cannabis in the roof and there was all those power packs and lights and things like that in there yeah. can you read your wristband there in that picture that i'm showing you on the laptop best of all and can you read the date on it 2006 yes so you were 14 months old in that picture and oh. we are on the isle of Wight ferry no drugs in sight we're drinking cups of tea <laughs> <laughs> So, Bob, that is, that's a, a clip from your podcast, which incidentally has got nothing to do with the BBC. It's not a BBC podcast. This is something you've done entirely on your own. There'll be people listening to that now and think you, it almost it sounds strange that you are talking about something 
very naturally that others would go, why, why even mention it? This is going to have the opposite effect. And actually, you're going to almost encourage it by saying that it's, you know, talking about it in such a normal way. Yeah, I think I'm a little bit worried about that. And I would try not to glorify or endorse drug taking. But it's really interesting that I've never mentioned personally drugs to my six-year-old before who would do and yet the first time I ask her like that have you ever heard of drugs she says is that something to do with smoking so already she's absorbing information from the world around her and picking up bits of knowledge about a subject and obviously as the kids get older they are absorbing all sorts of information and Mm. I want to give them some facts some evidence-based knowledge about this so that when they do get to those sort of peer pressure situations where they're out of your control they've gone to an event a nightclub a holiday away a festival that they can kind of think oh I remember I I know a bit about this I feel confident if this person's offering me something and I don't know what it is, I can say no or I can go and get help for my friend who's taken something or if I've taken something, I know I can ring my dad. He won't judge me and go crazy at me. He'll want to give me advice or come and help me. And, and I just kind of feel like starting an honest conversation is it's worth the risk that I might sow the seeds of interest. You know, I think teenagers are going to get curious anyway and teenagers take risks anyway. I'd rather give them some knowledge so that when they do take those risks, hopefully they're not quite as um, dangerous as they might be if they do it blind without any safety net. Well, and you're also on your podcast giving them the the incredibly tragic stories of, as, as well as when things go so desperately wrong. Uh, you spoke last week to Janine Melbourne. Now, Janine is the mother of Georgia Jones, who died aged 18 after taking ecstasy last year at Mutiny. Yeah, and it was um, really painful to hear, uh, but I think it's so important that people realise that Georgia was just a really normal 18-year-old girl. She had a job, she had friends who were nice, you know, her family are lovely, she got on with them, but she also fell out with them sometimes. She was a teenager, she rode horses, she loved caring for them. She'd started smoking. I think her parents were a bit annoyed about that. Uh, But she uh, also went out for a drink. She was 18 years old. She could do. And then she tried ecstasy twice. And the second time, it killed her. And, you know, it's so heartbreaking because uh, there are lots of gaps in that story where some information, if she'd known about it, some friends being with her at that festival at the right time or a quick call for help, uh, you know, no fear on the part of her peers that they might get arrested, a bit more knowledge about how to dose effectively and what to do if you feel unwell might have saved her. And I'm not the only one that sort of feels that there's a gap in information. Janine has um, started talking to more people about drugs since the tragedy of losing her daughter, and she's going to be back at the festival trying to uh, talk to festival goers and give them some of the information as well society as a whole still has this stigma about drugs and yet all these things are going on and in that sense sometimes I suppose it makes you feel like you should be hiding should I be in the shadows doing all this because my daughter died of a drug overdose even though it's the second time she'd ever taken MDMA that is what it's classed as people then think oh she must have been a druggie and and you do you have that stigma I suppose on on how you live your life and again that's something that needs to change because there are loads of people that take drugs so it's getting worse and worse and 
And until that stigma changes, then everything else isn't going to change. Bob, the name of the festival has changed. Um, South Central. I, what what are they putting in place and is it going to be safer than what it appears Mutiny was? Organisers have changed the very varied the style of the music a bit. So some of the headliners from last year that got cancelled are back again. Uh, so Craig David will be playing, but also they've got Boy George uh, playing and there's going to be slightly less electronic music. So it's a bit less like a rave, more like a mainstream festival. They say that the times of the acts are going to be broken up over the day. So it's not just an intense stream of banging music. Uh, if people have overdone the booze or the drugs, there'll be breaks and... They've worked with Janine. Janine has talked to the festival organisers all year long and she is going to be there herself very bravely. There will be more drug safety information inside the festival, more welfare provision. So if people have taken too much, they can go and have a place to calm down and chill out. There's also roaming patrols um, so that people will be looking out for people that look a little bit unwell. And Janine, like I say, will be there giving out leaflets and hopefully talking to festival goers. I'm going myself to the festival that weekend, if I can anyway, mentally, sort of do it. Personally, I've never been to a festival, so I feel I can't preach truthfully about something unless I've been there. So for myself, it'd be nice to see all these things in place. Um, Like I said, there's going to be a lot more welfare this year, which is people going round, looking out, for other people, looking for the signs of things going wrong. And obviously these welfare people have got more information this year as well. That's Janine Milburn, who will return to South Central Festival this weekend after her daughter, Georgia Jones, died at the festival last year. Now, Bob's podcast is not a BBC podcast, but it's called Dad Does Drugs. You can find it on all podcast apps. Um, what do you think? What do you think? Are you of the opinion that Bob is that actually it is best to have that open and honest conversation and therefore that you hope that if your child does something, they will feel okay to call you about it and have the conversation with you? Or are you almost shuddering at the possibility that they wouldn't think, no, the actual message is just say no. It still is that message. Um, And it shouldn't be any different from that. And actually having an open and honest conversation, Bob's phrase, is, is actually not going to help. And it should be far stricter than that. I, I don't, I don't know what you think. If you have teenagers in the family, I bet you've got a view on this. So there you go. If you're listening to this podcast for the first time after hearing that on the BBC, thank you. And hi. I really recommend you do go back and try the other nine episodes. Number two is really eye-opening, behind the scenes with a festival drug testing team. Episode one and seven feature great raconteurs from the world of music looking back over their drug-taking and their careers. Uh, There are heartbreaking testimonies on episodes 5 and 8 from bereaved parents who lost their 18-year-old daughters to different drugs, plus criminologists, psychologists, the police and festival organisers, and still more to come. I've got a few episodes to go, an ecstasy expert and movie maker, a politics professor who bought heroin for her addicted son to keep him out of prison, which sadly didn't work. Uh, One of the few British MPs that wants to legalise cannabis and a champion bodybuilder with a PhD to talk about steroids, diet pills and performance-enhancing drugs. Today, a great guest. 
the director of Drugwise, a charity which provides drug information which is topical, evidence-based and non-judgmental, with a great name, Harry Shapiro. He's worked in the drugs field for over 40 years. He'll tell you how and why in our chat. And he's written some very interesting sounding books which are on my must-read list. Waiting for the Man, the story of drugs and popular music. And Shooting Stars, drugs, Hollywood and the movies. I heard Harry on a panel discussion on a fantastic drug reform podcast called Stop and Search and I emailed him to ask for a chat. He agreed. And so I travelled to his house in Harrow... Uh, north of London on a very cold day in December of 2018. Once we'd had a nice cup of tea in his lounge, the conversation and us soon warmed up. We were only interrupted once by a heating engineer arriving. Typical, isn't it? The boiler always goes when it's freezing cold. Hello, Harry Shapiro. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> the fantastically named Harry Shapiro. You sound like he could be a gangster or could be a crime fighter. It's well, it's very interesting because there are two Harry Shapiros on Wikipedia. One is me, somebody in Germany, for reasons I have n- no idea why, decided they wanted to do a Wikipedia entry for me. <laughs> okay. Um, and the other Harry Shapiro that's listed is an American gangster. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. You're about... 50% right. Yeah. Very good. So I think you are the director of Drugwise. That's right, yeah. Uh, so I'll talk about that in a minute. And, okay. and you're also the author of uh, a number of books on music, That's uh, right. Hollywood and drugs. That's it, yeah. So, Entirely correct. Great. So I'm looking forward to finding out a bit more about you. So if we start okay. now and then sort of move backwards a bit. So yeah, what, sure. what's Drugwise and what does the director of Drugwise do? Do. Uh, well... Um, drug. I, for me, I've been working in this field for be forty years. Next year, I started off working for the Institute for the Study of Drug Dependence in nineteen seventy nine. Basically, as an information officer, um, and that became Drug Scope in two thousand because we merged with another charity. These are all charities, and then Drug Scope sadly fell over in twenty fifteen. So I started this little enterprise called Drugwise. And the whole thread of all of that is um, not service provision. I mean, I haven't been running clinics and rehabs and anything like that. It's all to do with information, communications, policy, government advisory work and all the rest of it. But primarily providing information for people about the whole range of different drugs that people can get into difficulties with including prescription drugs as well antidepressants uh, tranquilizers and painkillers as well as you know heroin cannabis LSD, you know and all, all of the other drugs that people are, are kind of familiar with doing a lot of communications work as well like this for instance um I suppose because there's such a lot of ignorance and mythology and misunderstanding and prejudice and all the rest of it around this subject particularly, um, that I've kind of tried to position myself, which seems to have worked, as somebody who can give a, a little bit of a kind of helicopter view on all of this, particularly when you start talking about subjects like legalisation and all of that. You know, there are... There are plenty of you know people who are 
um, you know, vehemently committed to the legalisation agenda and there are other people who are vehemently committed against the legalisation agenda. And so, you know, um, it's quite useful for journalists in particular to try and get a bit of a, like I say, some people call it sitting on the fence. I call it taking me. I say the view's quite good from up here. Um, and um, although the one thing I won't do and... Um, I had a Channel 4 journalist call me up the other day to say that they were going to have a debate about legalisation. Did I want to take part? And I said, no. <laughs> she said, why? And I said, because you're going to give me 30 seconds, aren't you, to say, yes, we should, or no, we shouldn't. Uh, and I said, the subject is way more complicated than that, and I'm not prepared just to get engaged with, like, essentially sound bites. Yeah. Um, but um, I will talk long and loud on many other aspects of this subject. But but that one is is you know, and it's the one that everyone kind of wants to to talk about. And it is it is complicated, and it isn't for me anyway. It isn't a straightforward yes or no. And the longer I've been in this field, the more I've realised how complicated the whole thing is. Yeah. So, like I say, basically what I do, I mean, drug wise is literally two people. It's just myself working from home and. A, ex-colleague from Drugscope she takes care of all the kind of online website yeah, Twitter I've seen the website there's lots stuff. of colourful information yeah, sheets about exactly. different so drugs she, and she, so on she deals with all that because I'm not that technical who uses those bits of information do schools oh, use them schools journalists um, people with you know looking for drug information for themselves or, or for, for, for uh, you know friends and family Academics, clinicians, researchers—anybody really—that—that's that, the whole point of it—is—is is just to give people a, a window into that world and try and. Uh, there's a kind of information ethos there that it should be, it should be current, it should be evidence-based, and it should be non-judgmental. Right. So people assume if you work for a charity like this, you're 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 either against drugs or somehow you're for drugs. Yeah. And I'm saying, well, I'm neither. Okay. I'm neither for... <laughs> why, why do you do all this drugs work then? What's the God. fascination or the interest? <laughs> well, I suppose it. the reason I do it is because I've... I suppose it's something... Uh, I'm not, I'm not going to try not to make this sound cheesy and pious, but but it is something to do with... Wanting people to have, yeah, trying to deal with mythologies and stigmatization, discrimination, and all the things that people who've got serious drug problems have to suffer. So your street heroin user, those sorts of people, who are really right at the bottom of the social pile, everyone despises, but who are not there out of choice. You know, you ask a group of kids what they want to be when they grow up and no, none of them's going to put their hand up and say, oh, I'd like to be a heroin addict, please. <laughs> you know, this happens to people. And I think, uh, uh, in a sense, trying to to do whatever I've tried to do through kind of writing and books and speeches and broadcasts and all the rest of it to try and get across a, a different narrative about people who are really seriously in trouble. Um, I suppose that's kind of at the root of it because, you know, people talk about junkies and drug fiends and all the rest of it. And it's a very deeply embedded um, 
antipathy towards people. Yeah, but then on the other hand, there's this weird fascination. So you've written books about uh, Hollywood and music. Yeah, so I have. I, I, you know, I love to hear stories of 70s rock and roll excess and well, things like that. So I, I'm that, curious. That came, as the other, that came as the other, because when I first started writing, deciding that I wanted to write, it was like, well, what are you going to write about? And the answer was music, because it was, you know, the my basic passion has been, you know, I grew up in the 60s and all that that meant, you know, Jimi yeah. Hendrix and Eric Clapton and all that, all that kind of music scene, psychedelia and all the rest of it. And I suppose it was the music that kind of got me into the drugs <laughs> because I was working for a firm of architects and engineers and getting bored stiff uh, and decided I wanted to to write and so yeah what are you going to write about you're going to write about music okay fair enough what about music and I, I discovered just by chance mention of a musician called Graham Bond who's not that well known these days but was quite a major figure on the London blues scene in the 1960s well I was standing on the corner waiting to go home when I heard this sound that made me want to go well it was coming from and I started doing some kind of research about him because there were various books that gave him a passing mention but just said he was one of the most influential musicians. I thought, okay, really? Well, no one seems to know anything about this very influential. <laughs> so anyway, I started researching, managed to come across musicians who he'd worked with and all the rest of it and it turned out he had a serious heroin habit about which I knew absolutely nothing. You know, I'd never come across it. So I started doing some research on that as well. And then I saw an advert in The Guardian for an information officer at the Institute for the Study of Drug Dependence. And I thought, hmm, OK, well, I kind of know a little bit about this now. Give it a go. You know, I've got nothing to lose. So they actually gave me the job. <laughs> um, and I've been doing it ever since. And the reason, I suppose, is it's just simply because... Um, the major issues around drugs don't seem to go away. Um, the drugs might change, but the attitudes and the information and the lack of information and all the misunderstanding and all that stuff doesn't seem to go away. You know, we're now kind of mired in kind of stuff about spice and monkey dust and the stuff that is just comes up on, you know, that, every, that journalists kind of feed off each other and they build up this kind of image about what's going on out there and um it's endlessly fascinating i have to say because the scene changes all the time so it's um but also like i say the the attitudes to the people with the most serious problems don't seem to change either so it's an ongoing discussion about the people with those problems about you know, I'm I'm, I'm a, a big believer in harm reduction, what's known as harm reduction. In other words, the fact that you are not going to stamp out drug use. You know, it's just not going to happen. You can have all the government policies and strategies and announcements and initiatives you like. It ain't going to happen. Um, so if it ain't going to happen, what are you going to do? Well, at the very least you could do is to try and, A, make sure people have the information. If they're going to do it, if they're going to take that risk, then at least they should be armed with sufficient information to try and reduce the risk. 
which is what harm reduction is, which is why I've always supported needle exchange, more recently drug testing at festivals. I mean, none of this stuff is fail-safe, you know. None of this stuff is fail-safe. But on the other hand, you know, particularly where you're talking about people with the worst problems, that, you know, you can't recover if you're dead, (laughs) essentially. And, And if you give people the chance to get through a phase of their life that most of them seriously want to leave behind but can't for whatever reason, at least give them the the wherewithal to, to try and protect their health. Yeah. Um, my podcast, I want to be, you know, it's called Dad Does Drugs, talking about uh, drugs to keep our children safer. So I'm sort mm. of thinking that there's a lot of parents who most people who will, most of their children will try drugs at some point or will come across their friends who are trying drugs, uh, but they probably won't become heroin addicts. You know, they'll just try drugs and 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 move on probably as, they, as they grow up. I think mature. it's worth saying right now that most young people don't try drugs. <laughs> I mean, this is part of the mythology right. that they're all into it. Yeah. yeah. That each individual kid thinks all his mates or her mates are at it and they, re- they really aren't. Um, I mean, I can't give you percentage figures, but, but from years of working in this field, most kids won't go anywhere near drugs if they do, the chances are it will only be cannabis and that for a limited period of time anyway. A smaller percentage will um, you know, get onto the festival and the club scene and so therefore they might be experimenting with other things, mainly ecstasy primarily. Um, and, a, and a far, far smaller percentage of that group who almost certainly have got some serious emotional, psychological and physical problems anyway, particularly if they've been in care and all of that. The the kids that finish up on the streets with serious drug and alcohol problems, you know, by and large going to be those from kind of broken, dysfunctional families. And like I say, in and out of care homes, in and out of foster care, excluded from school. You know, it it's almost becomes a cliche yeah. that, that the kids who are most likely to have the most problems are the ones with drugs, are the ones with the most problems in their life. Right. Um, isn't just a factor of kind of sort of poverty and deprivation, although that doesn't help. And if you look at the sort of national picture, you know, the worst drug problems generally are in the worst and most deprived parts of the country, which are particularly in the northeast, you right. know, and up that, up that way. Oh, that's really interesting, really, just to think, yeah, a tiny percentage of young people will actually try them. But hmm. yeah, most young people, I would say nearly all, will drink. Hmm. Uh, and and that's pretty dangerous in itself, isn't it? So we've got this funny thing where we, we talk about drugs, but then we have a big, a big legal drug that... Uh, Causes loads of harm that yeah. doesn't get discussed in anywhere near the same way. No, because because we it, it's it's part and parcel of normal society. Yeah, you know, and so therefore, anything that's normalised in that way becomes less scary and less you know. Whereas what you've got, you've got you know drugs being imported from far away. You've got you know um, pills from who knows where containing who knows what. Um, and of course, every 
every ecstasy, not even just ecstasy death, but even ecstasy hospitalisation is going to make front page news or will get, you know, a good mention in the press. Kid being admitted to A&E because he drank too much. You're not going to read too much about that in the newspapers because no. it isn't news. No. It's not news if somebody... And kids, you know, they... I can't remember the right expression now. Um, but when you, you know, you, you basically drink before you go out. Oh, yeah, preloading. Preloading, that's yeah. the one. Preload, yeah. And, and that's, you know, and of course, alcohol has got significantly cheaper these days and more obtainable. When I was growing up, could have afforded to drink, you know, vodka and rum and tequila and all that stuff, you know. Yeah. I wasn't even sure what tequila was, but... <laughs> could you see but, a point, if we, if we do move to, you know legalising uh, other recreational drugs, mm. cannabis presumably to start with, yeah. uh, seems most likely. But then um, I saw that Transform Drug Policy are trying to write up a possible uh, way to legalise stimulants yeah, like yeah, ecstasy yeah. and cocaine. Yeah. Um, if they if they were legally regulated, so you did know what was in them, it's like buying a paracetamol, you know exactly sort of what it is, uh, w- would that... Be similarly, would it how how long before it would be normalised in the same way as alcohol? Oh, yeah, I mean, I I think I think that. What can I say about that? I, I, yes, I mean, I think part part of the problem we have with, I mean, you know, drugs. You know, a lot of these drugs are fairly dangerous, but most people will come through. Yeah, you know, there are many many people there having the occasional line of coke at the weekend, and they're not going to come to any grief. Millions and millions of doses of ecstasy have been consumed since the late 80s. At one point, there was a whole big thing that we were going to have a whole generation of depressed people because of what ecstasy does to serotonin levels and all of that. None of that kind of materialised. So, yeah, I mean, I think over time we would probably become kind of acculturized. I think is the right word, to the fact in the same way that we've become... You know, used to alcohol. Tobacco is, of course, an interesting uh, contrast because, of course, it's now harder and harder to actually smoke. Yeah. It's become more and more expensive. Um, they can't advertise it. They can't promote it. It's hidden behind, you know, cabinets in supermarkets. You can't smoke in public. Um, and it's now, you know, at least... 10 quid for a packet of 20, if not more. Yeah, so, But they haven't made it illegal. Uh, but well, no, they haven't made it illegal. But, you know, our smoking rates have come down dramatically in yeah. this country over years. I think we're now down to about 15% of the adult population, whereas, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, it was kind of way higher than that. Of course, that's also associated with people's general feeling about, you know, healthy lifestyles. Yeah. Going jogging and eating avocados. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of got... It's all wrapped up, I suppose, in in all part of that as well. Do you think it's also wrapped up in in, um, our ideas of what's cool as well, going back to your music thing? So, Mm. you know, the image of of young people rebelling through the sort of 50s, 60s, 70s, it was smoking cigarettes, uh, drinking, doing things that the older generation hadn't done uh, and we've gradually made smoking, uh, it's changed and it's become uncool yeah. and, and undesirable, Absolutely. whereas I still think that drugs, certainly in the way that they're in fiction and in movies, drugs are cool. Well, yeah, except I'm not so sure. You see, if you look at what's happened to the drug scene in the UK over the last 10, 15, 20 years, um, 
there have been some spikes in use and the, there's been an overall downward trend like that, particularly amongst 16 to 24 year olds. It's been going like that. Maybe it's begun to plateau out a little bit. And there are little spikes now for some drugs like ecstasy and cocaine, little upward ticks. But looking back from when, you know, Noel Gallagher was getting entertained at number 10 and it was called Britannia and yeah. all of that in the 90s, I, I'm not entirely convinced that drugs per se are this quite as cool as they once were. No. And I think more worrying trends as far as young people are concerned. For example indications about the use of drugs like Xanax, for instance, and tranquilizers. Now, that you see, that speaks to me. I mean, drugs are normally, in popular culture, kind of associated with particular fashion trends in music, for yeah. instance. And I think there's been a bit of an association between Xanax, which is a kind of tranquilizer, and, and kind of the, the rap grime scene, particularly in America. But I think if you look at the, the state of our mental health services for young people, there's some statistic on the radio that there's something like one in four young women are going to have some kind of problem with mental health, you know, teenagers. Um, I think there's a lot of self-medication going on with some of these drugs, um, not necessarily from an enjoyment, recreational pleasure point of view, yeah. but just the pressure that a lot of young people are under these days. And I think, you know, social media doesn't help in that respect. Cyberbullying and yeah. Instagram photos and all, yeah, all the stuff that, you, you can't, that, that put extra pressure on young people to be what everyone else expects them to be or look and dress like their friends or whatever yeah. happens. And, of course, social media is also a supply route for some of these drugs as well. Um, yeah, I think the 90s had a sort of work hard, play hard kind of feel. To, um, yeah. Whereas now worry if it's... I think parents would worry that their kids are just sort of constantly wanting to yeah, either self-medicate, like you say, or just get a, a regular cannabis habit that becomes really poor for their motivation, their uh, academic... Yeah, although, life. again, you see, I think, I think that I think there has been a, a change of attitude, I think, you know, because I think students and kind of stuff, that they actually do work harder. I guess they pay yeah. a lot to go to university, well, don't they? And, so. and this is, this is a, a, you know, a good point. You know, people, you know, they, they, they are a lot less interested in... I mean, there's always going to be, you know, that group of students, kids, undergraduates, whatever, who are going to do stuff. Because kids and young people and teenagers do stuff. You know, they experiment all kinds of things, drugs, alcohol, sex, Riding on the back of motorbikes, what yeah. it's what you do, you know, extreme sports. It's it's kind of what you do when you, you know what a lot of kids do. So, um, but I think I think that um, there's always tipping points on the drug scene um, where things will go on, and then suddenly there'll be a, a, a jump. Yeah, you know, something will happen. So you know, when the rave scene started, the ecstasy pushed. Yeah, you know, that came along, and that that produced a kind of jump in the in the drug scene it moved it moved it on changed it um i suppose the internet really has done that since yeah um simply because it's a lot easier for people to get hold of the not not so much uh, 
an individual user level, but from a manufacturing point of view, you know, you send your encrypted email to China and you get the chemicals back and you cook them up and sell them on the street. Um, So the, the internet itself has made a fairly significant difference to the availability of some drugs. So that's been like another jump. But sometimes people, what comes around the corner... That they, you know, after the financial crash, for instance, you know, everyone was talking about oh, crime rates are going to go through the roof, drugs are going to go berserk, you know, everyone's going to be, you know, with holes in their shoes as a result of all of this. And of course, it didn't happen. It yeah. didn't happen like that. Is the next sort of bump, uh, is it the the legalisation of the, you know, Canada, these states in America? Yeah, I mean, people talk, talk about talk about the idea that, you know, the whole international control mechanisms is beginning to crumble i have to say i'm not tremendously convinced about that uh, i mean cannabis was always likely to be you know the drug that if there was going to be a shift in the international picture that cannabis was most likely to be the, i mean in america during the 70s 11 states legalized cannabis in america and that was in the 1970s um, and they all went back the other way, not because there were major drug problems, but because um, the Republicans took over from the Democrats. And it would have been Ronald Reagan who basically said to these states who were in receipt of federal funds for all sorts of things, unless you reverse your laws on this, you ain't going to get any more federal money. So there you go. What do you do? So... um, so there's been a kind of, you know, and obviously the situation in, in Holland has been, you know, where people think they've legalised cannabis, well, they haven't actually legalised them. All they've done is essentially turned a blind eye yeah. to people smoking cannabis in certain cafes in certain towns. But I, I went to a drug symposium thing where a, a chap from Portugal was there oh, talking yeah. about um, how they've decriminalised all drug use. And it's he, he was very positive about mm. the fact that then... If they get someone who, you know, he sort of used this little story of, you know, your plumber who takes cocaine once a month after payday, goes out on that weekend and uses it. If he's caught with it, uh, or, you know, usually because he's been stopped for something else, say, and they find the drugs on him, yeah. then he doesn't get any kind of criminal charge. They just have a chat with him about his drug use, make sure that he's not got a problem. And then uh, send, him on, on, send him on his way with a bit more information but about the harm reduction stuff. I, like I think there is, I mean, I haven't looked at it, but I've got a feeling you can't keep on doing that. No, yeah, I, think, <laughs> I think you have a couple of goes. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's sort of three strikes and you're out. But but with the more serious pe- uh, problem <laughs> users, like, like you were um, saying, the, the heroin users, um, then they're able to get them to a place where they can get uh, either methadone instead of their heroin or they can... You know, be, they can be seeing people. They can be which, of course, is what place. we've been doing for decades. I mean, I think there's also a little bit of a a little bit of a misunderstanding about the Portuguese situation. I mean, it is true they are the only country, as far as I'm aware, that's actually decriminalised drugs for personal use in their legislation, rather than just say doing what the Dutch do. And it's still on the statute books, but you kind of don't do anything about it, as far as cannabis is concerned, okay. anyway. But the whole reason why the Portuguese went down that route was that up until the mid-70s, they were a military dictatorship. And at that point, using drugs was illegal. 
Now, not being, I mean, that's not being in possession or dealing, actually using. So if you had track marks on your arms, but no drugs on you, that was good enough for them to sling you in prison, right? The net result of that was when the HIV epidemic came around, they had soaring rates of HIV because nobody was prepared to come forward for treatment right? because they were going to get thrown in prison. Oh, okay. <laughs> so what they did was they, they changed the legislation. The military dictatorship was done away with. They changed the legislation with the express idea of getting as many people into treatment as they possibly could to try and deal with the HIV epidemic, which they did. Yes. Yeah. That was successful. Right, you have to stop, stop me now. Yeah, yeah. Because I've got a feeling this could be the... This is the plumber. I hope, I hope so. <laughs> now, they have these things called dissuasion committees, I think. Yeah. And most of the people who finish up in front of dissuasion committees are cannabis users. You don't actually need any treatment anyway. They were just unlucky right. and got caught. So, so yeah, and, I mean, I think... But a lot of what they do... Uh, I mean, it's in a sense, the same in this country. I mean, I, I, my feeling about this is at least people should not be getting a criminal record for p- possession of small amounts of drugs for personal use whatever the drug is, it really is, you know, there's a sense of natural justice here, I suppose, in the sense that if you've got three blokes, say they're blokes, you know, one's got a cigarette, one's got a can of beer, and the other one's got a cannabis joint, you know, why should two of them be okay and the other one could potentially finish up with a criminal record? It doesn't actually, I think if you put that to a lot of people, it wouldn't, seem very fair yeah and you know most people just get warnings and and tickings off and don't do it again from the police about about this kind of thing i mean certainly nobody goes to well nobody goes to prison because of this no. unless there are all sorts of other mitigating circumstances as but well. there is all the drug crime of all the dealing isn't there? well it's... yeah there's there's there's, there's all of, of what goes on on the street because of the fact that these drugs are illegal. There's no, no, you know, there's no, there's no question about that. I, sp- I spoke to Norman Lamb, MP, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. who uh, this week put in his 10-minute rule bill to, mm. uh, about legalising recreational cannabis. Yeah. So I, I'm not sure I quite understand how how legal the Home Secretary has made medicinal cannabis. Not very, I think, or very difficult to get it's, it. Yeah, it, it's, as to my best of my understanding it's kind of restricted to specific medical conditions mainly this whole epilepsy thing yeah and it can only be prescribed by specialist doctors so if anybody thought they could go to their gp and kind of walk away with a prescription for a spliff i think they've been <laughs> severely disappointed but i i think yes i think they've they've made a step in the right direction but I suspect that um, it's still not going to be that easy to get these prescriptions. And I think part of the problem at the moment, because it's so new, there aren't proper prescribing guidelines for any of this. I mean, they're going to be developed, but it's all a bit kind of uh, up for grabs. And I think that once it will settle down, I'm sure. Um, But it's very interesting. I find that whole medicinal cannabis thing 
fascinating in the sense that we've we banned cannabis in 1928 okay so that's 80 years ago right and we've spent the last 80 years denying that cannabis has got any medicinal value at all apart from the f- leaving aside the fact that it's been used for thousands of years in india and china and all of that kind of thing but it, it no, no it's got no no it's got no therapeutic value at all all it t- and, and that was the view of the current government and Labour, it mm. has to be said, until very, very recently. It was just going to be some stalking horse for legalisation. So what happens? You get a couple of high-profile cases, uh, Alfie and I can't remember the name of the other kid, but, but you know, two situations where parents were desperate for these, were saying, this is the only stuff that helps. And then one of them comes back through Heathrow and it gets... Uh, confiscated by customs and there's uproar so you've got what I call the sort of stress test for policy reform you know you've got politicians took it up the press took it up clearly public opinion was on the side of the parents how could you be so heartless as to let and what happens Um, within weeks um or actually days, you've got the chief medical officer coming out with a paper demonstrating the medical efficacy of cannabis, like, where did that come from? (laughs) You know, and civil servants running around trying to sort this out, you know, and getting the National Institute for Clinical Excellence involved and the medical regulator, everybody's running around, you know, producing papers and reports and stuff, bang, there you are, It, it happens. So it's a good example of how, in this particular case, you can turn you know, decades of drug policy on its head yeah. in a matter of weeks. But Norman Lamb's uh, bill gets voted down and, and the Home Secretary, when he when he made the announcement about the medicinal use, said it wasn't going to uh, lead to legalisation of no. recreational use. But it does feel like the door is now ajar. So do, do you think... Like my, my kids are, um, are 5, 10 and, and 13. So I'm sort of thinking in terms of in five years' time, one of them will be an adult. And in 10 years' time, another one will. In 15 years, yeah, another yeah. one will. In that 5, 10, 15 years, what do you think will have changed on drug policy? Yeah, I just think, in, like I said earlier, I think in terms of tipping points. Yeah. So what is going to be the tipping point that allows a Home Secretary of the future to say, all right, Okay, you, you've convinced me, you know, enough is enough. And I don't know what that tipping point would be. I think what happens is that just in terms of, you know, the criminal law, you, you can sort of do what the Dutch do and kind of let it wither on the vine. I think, there's, I think probably from a political point of view, it's one thing not to enforce the law, which by and large happens a lot with cannabis yeah it's political there's a difference between not enforcing the law and changing it because if you change it you're making a political statement that the government now thinks for example that cannabis is okay (laughs) you know and um there would be you know there would be all sorts of opposition to it i i don't think the the public are, are that bothered about cannabis in probably in quite the way they were not least because there are now what one, two, maybe, well, at least two generations of, of parents and grandparents who may well have smoked dope. Yeah. As they, you know, grandparents from the 60s, parents from the 70s and 80s and, and, and more recently. So 
I think I think the climate, but but then again, you know, there's got to be a political reason for doing it. Right. So, for example, in two thousand and four, the then Home Secretary David Blunkett agreed to reduce the classification of cannabis from a class B drug to a class C drug. Um, I mean, it's a minor tweak in the law. It caused a major political storm, which shows you just by doing that, yeah. you cause a load of aggravation. Um, on the basis that, you know, it would mean that police would, could devote more time to chasing the real baddies and the really bad drugs and all the rest of it. I mean, it was all a lot of kind of political shenanigans, really. It didn't make a whole lot of difference. As soon as Gordon Brown became Prime Minister, he put it back to B again, you know. But again... So what, in, in the sense of, you know, the idea that people were going to rush out looking for cannabis because it had gone from class B, yeah. it was just like nonsense. I mean, there were, there were people from mental health charities that thought, you know, Armageddon had come because, because of what, it's, but it didn't make any difference at all if people were going to use cannabis or were going to use cannabis. I think, you know, part of be careful what you wish for with this is the fact that we've, we've managed to incubate a kind of homegrown cannabis industry in this country which is actually producing some pretty strong cannabis because to keep it out of sight you grow it indoors and if you grow it indoors you grow it without soil and under lights right and you get stronger strains of cannabis okay. through doing it than the stuff that's still being imported from north africa and places like that um, so I think this is what politicians call the unintended consequences of prohibition. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I think policy might evolve, but I think there would have to be, I mean, the police, as a good example, I think there'd have to be some pragmatic reason. I mean, there are police, it used to be police chief constables who were just about to retire, who said, We've got to do something about this. We can't carry on like this. You know, we've got to legalise this or change yeah. that. Okay. And now, more recently, it's become actual serving chief constables and the police and crime commissioners, particularly up north, yeah. Durham, that have been saying this kind of thing. And I think if you marry that against, you know, the fact that the police under a huge amount of resource pressure and all the rest of it, you know, they really have not got time and should not be spending time chasing people around the streets in case they've got a little bit of cannabis in their back pocket. Yeah, now, maybe that could be a potential it's that, I think thing. it's it's a more of a pragmatic yeah. thing. And, the, than, and the, I guess the tax income... Uh, well, tax income, yeah, that's, that, that's been mooted. It, I, but again, again, you see, the thing about the tax income issue is that, you know, you can't grow your own tobacco in this country. No. Most people don't bother brewing their own alcohol. It was a bit of a fad at one time, but most yeah. people don't because you can walk into a supermarket and buy anything. It's, it's as cheap as chips. But with can, which is different with cannabis, you can. You know, I could grow some in that garden and puff yeah. away, and, and that would be that. So therefore, the legal market in cannabis has got to be sufficiently expensive in order to generate the cash tax revenues that, you know, supporters of that would say, you know, we're going to billion pounds a year or whatever the sums are. Yes, you will. Um, but only if people want to buy the product. Yeah. 
But um, I think, I think we're a really convenience generation, aren't we? I mean, people people could make their own coffee, but they yeah. buy it for three yeah. quid uh, expensively yeah, on the street. Yeah. So people I think people grind could... their own. But I think probably yes, you would certainly. I mean, what the actual um, revenue take would be is impossible to say. It depends. Yeah. It's not going to be government running it, that's for sure. It's not going to be, you know, you're not going to be going to your government shop and buying... <laughs> yeah, it's going to be big tobacco, big pharma, right. and probably big cannabis as well, which is what's been happening in States and America. Do you think it's just... We're, we're just too British to accept it. Some of the other... It's sort of interesting how different... So you've got maybe a European country, and this might be stereotypes, but there's sort of like the relaxed Mediterranean a- 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 attitude to alcohol, meal times, what have you, seems to, maybe that's filtered into some of their thinking about drugs in Canada and some of the Americas, that sort of laid back. It's just, whereas over here, we, we obsess and we panic about it, we repress it, we I, all want to do the drugs, but we don't I think also we haven't got much self-control. I mean, most of, the, yeah. most of the bad drinking that goes on happens in Northern European countries, yeah, you know, yeah. Germany and places like that, you know. I don't think, I think, I don't think we do moderation. To be perfectly yeah, honest. maybe that's the fear. If we legalise it, we'll all <laughs> we'll suddenly all go, go mad. Out and, yeah, know? I, I, I don't know, but I, I think, I think, because I'm writing a book at the moment about the history of the UK drug scene. Okay. This is my latest book, and I was just looking at back in the late sixties, where we had all sorts of social reforms. You know, we we liberalised the laws on on abortion, on theatre censorship. Uh, we abolished hanging, there were new laws making divorce easier, equal pay. I mean, the whole list of, of what you would call liberalising legislation. Mm. Drug laws went backwards. Okay. And I think part of that, and Jim Callaghan, who was Home Secretary at the time, when people were agitating for cannabis legalisation back then, he was, I mean, they, they didn't talk about red lines back in those days. But, but I think because of, you know, the pill and hippies and miniskirts and all the things that traditionalists thought of as like the permissive society, yeah. you know, free love and all the rest of it. Doing something about drugs was seen as a line in the sand. It's like, okay, well, we've done all that. You know, we can't stop that. We can't make miniskirts longer than that. Yeah, we can't. But what we can do is stop, stop these drugs happening. Okay. Uh, and I think it became less about the effects of drugs and more about what the drugs symbolised. Yeah, it's a moral decision. Yeah, it's a moral decision and I think that moral view pervades today. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, yeah, it doesn't matter how many politicians might have smoked dope and whether they inhaled or not, of course, is another matter. So, yeah, I don't think it, it kind of matters from that point of view. It's the same as when people become parents, whatever they might have done as teenagers. Once they become parents, like, well, yeah, I said, do this, yeah. don't do that. What time are you due in? You know, so all you know, your perspective entirely changes as soon as you become a parent, you know, which is why a lot of parents, I suspect, are quite I mean, some parents are probably quite open about all of this, but you know, if they get asked, Well, did you ever do drugs, dad? I just wonder what percentage of dads are going to kind of well, cough up. To yeah. what they did, you know. Um. I'm, I, that's something, something I'm wondering about with this podcast. You know, I've tried recreational drugs, and w- w- would it be of any benefit to be honest about that with your children, or or not? I mean, I've listened to a, a chap who's a, a, a drug journalist, and I listened to him on a podcast saying that he think he thought if his 
teenage son wanted to go to a festival and take ecstasy, he, he'd want to buy it for him and, and give him a lift home afterwards. And I think, wow, that's, I mean, that's one end of the scale. Or do you just sort of honestly say that you tried it and, uh, but you also... I think it's, it's a, for a lot of people, I think, um, it's, I think it's like the, the American military attitude to gay people in the, in the military forces is like, I can't remember the exact, don't, don't, don't say don't, I can't remember exactly what the phrase is, but what I mean is don't tell us what's going on. Yes, okay. If you don't tell us, then we can't do anything about it. There's a, there's a, a phrase that goes with that, and I can't, can't get my head around what it actually is. The phrase Harry was searching for, and that I couldn't remember either, so I didn't leap in and help him out, instead leaving him to flounder, was don't ask, don't tell. It's, it's a little bit like kind of, you know, I think most parents kind of know that their kids, you know, might be having a drink on the sly or a smoke on the sly, or the odd spliff or the odd pill or whatever, but it, by and large, they don't, they don't really want to know and they just keep their fingers crossed that nothing bad's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, I, I think probably most young people don't want to talk to their parents about it either. Well, no, no, it, 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 it. you know, I think, I think there's an unrealistic expectation, particularly in you know, families where they don't talk about stuff anyway, you know, and, and, you know, you hear these people on the radio saying, you talk to your children about drugs. Well, if you don't talk to your kids about anything else, you know, and there's, and, and there isn't that kind of sense of communication and being able to sit and talk about anything, you know, why, why, why all of a sudden are you going to be able to have a sensible conversation about yeah. drugs? Yeah, which would just end with a load of door slamming and yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, I think it's 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 you know, if if you if you haven't had the conversations about you know, life, the universe, and everything, you know, to try and make drugs something special, when you haven't talked sensibly and calmly about other matters, it's almost certainly not going to work. <laughs> well, thanks ever so much okay. for your time, Harry. It's, it's been right. um, great talking to you. Thank okay. you. There's something happening here But what it is ain't exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I got to beware I think it's time we stop, children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down Is it working? I think so. Yes. yes. Harry Shapiro. Uh, yeah. One of his books arrived today, so I'm going to read it. The one about the history of popular music and drugs. Oh, yeah. Which he wrote, I noticed on the thing, quite a lot of years ago now, about 20 years ago. But I think a good deal of the roots of music and its connection with drugs happens before 1999, so uh, I think that'll all be yeah. still interesting. He was a nice guy. What did you think of the conversation? Yeah, I was like just said with the stuff before '99. All the drugs sort of the music seemed to not seemed to have happened in like the 20th century. Yes. So the thing that was really up to date was that thing about Xanax. So a lot of hip hop from the states at the moment seems to be associated with people taking prescription medication that they don't have a prescription for. So Xanax is a a kind of sleeping pill, relaxant type drug, and um, and Xanax is the brand name for it. Some um, 
rappers have tattoos of Xanax on them. And, you know, it's kind of they use they refer to the name a lot in their lyrics. It's kind of become a a cool thing to take. Yeah. But if you take drugs like that, I think it's a benzodiazepine. It's basically a sleeping pill, and if you take them with other things, you can, you can kill just, you. You can just never wake up. Yeah, um, and the, there's been a couple of. I mean, I would show my ignorance because I don't really know the names of the rappers, but there's been a couple of, if you were into that scene, high-profile deaths quite recently of uh, yeah. young guys with tattooed faces who've died because they've taken um, Xanax. I fact-checked, and actually, although there is a sort of hip-hop-associated Xanax trend following its mention in a number of song lyrics... There is only one death. In November 2017, the rapper Lil Peep was found dead after an overdose of Xanax mixed with fentanyl, the powerful uh, synthetic opiate painkiller. I think I thought another rapper, Mac Miller, the uh, ex of Ariana Grande, had taken Xanax too when he died in 2018, but he hadn't. He'd taken fentanyl, again, cocaine and alcohol. So that was a bit up to date, but I think, yeah, they're right. Some of the rest of it is 1960s, 1970s. Yeah. And then the um, rave culture in the 1990s, so it's a bit dated. For someone who's worked in drugs for 40 years, I sort of found him almost a bit resigned to the fact that nothing's ever going to change. Yeah. It's almost a bit depressing, really, but... He did say, and I thought it was interesting that, and I've quoted this to other people as well since, that 80% of young people won't try drugs. Yeah. It's not like everyone's doing it. You know, only one in five, one in five under 24-year-olds say that they've tried an illegal drug in the last year. So that's so 80% of people under 24 haven't. And of those, of the, of the one in five, that 20%, most of them, it's probably just a bit of cannabis. Won't yeah. Be anything. Tell me what you thought about the uh, any bits yeah, of the conversation. Yeah, nothing ever going to change thing. Um, it's kind of like as the scientist lady from last week was saying last week about like for like a long time humans have used recreational kind of drugs like for hallucinogens and things like that. Yeah. So that kind of thing is probably not going to change. Humans always do that. It's just like the way the law does. Because always and it, alongside it, there's always going to be deaths by drugs because it's like their nature to be a bit dangerous because mm. there's, there's deaths from driving all the time yeah but they don't like say on that it's just something humans do yes yeah you can't get rid of the risks you're right you know there'll always be someone that has an allergic reaction to peanuts doesn't mean that peanuts are like Need to be like prohibition no no it's just it's um, just a, a thing yeah yeah so i think like legalizing them would just like reduce the risk it, it might be mightn't it but i think he was very he was very guarded about that. wasn't committing to whether whether legalisation because yeah. legalisation will bring it, will bring problems as well as solutions. I think some of the countries where they're starting to legalise or decriminalise things are just slightly different cultures to ours. You know, yeah. I think Portugal is always you've given us an example, but I think in Portugal, I think it's got a much smaller population. Yeah. I was right about this one. Portugal is about three times smaller than the UK. And in terms of people, the population of the UK is 64.4 million people. 10.8 million people live in Portugal. 53 million less. So they're smaller and less densely packed in. 
Does that affect drug taking? I don't know. It's just my hunch. We've got these enormous urban centres where, and we've got this culture where people go out and either get really drunk or, or just go out on a, to have a wild time. And I'm not sure that, that all it, you know, maybe that doesn't exist so much in some other countries. So if you did, if you did legalise a whole load of things, I think it, it might cause quite a lot of problems as well as, yeah. as well as solve some. The bit that he was saying at the end, I suppose, relates to our podcast, where he was talking about parents and, and how he thought that most parents would, most people when they grow up and become parents then suddenly change their attitude to things so whereas when they were young they'd say when they were young they probably would go out and get drunk at least Uh, but suddenly when they become parents they say to their kids don't do that Um, yeah i feel like that's not a great way to do things i think the reason i'm doing this podcast is because i think that doesn't sit right with me anyway i don't feel comfortable with that uh, what do you think about that? Well, like changing and saying no to things. Well, it depends how foolish the thing is. Yeah. If it's something you did as a child and it didn't end very well, then, you know, but if it's kind of harmless, then... We break the law, then say, like, avoid it, but, like, I don't know. I think I'm trying to think about the safety and the harm of things, hmm. and then... A bit about the illegality because that, with that comes some harm and risk of getting in trouble, and that has knock-on effects. But then also thinking about the bigger harm that's possible to come through not talking about the things. Mm. You know, accidents happen. I mean, there's just been some tragedies that have happened in the Easter holidays where a 13-year-old and a 15-year-old and another 15-year-old have taken ecstasy and died kind of in the park you know not because they were adults going to a rave or anything like that but just because they must have heard of ecstasy and then they've got it off the friend and thought it would be fun but i mean until you did this podcast you wouldn't have known anything about ecstasy would you like did you think of your friends they just you wouldn't they wouldn't know anything about it and so then to take something like just in a park because you're mucking about and then think, oh, I feel really weird. I don't know what to do. If I tell anyone, I'll get in trouble. I'll just sit here and see what happens. Yeah. You know, if it's a hot day, you overheat. You, you could be. Well, it proved to be fatal for these for these really young people. And, and I think that you know, those sort of incidents obviously happen very rarely. But I think if you're not talking honestly about anything to kids and there is the possibility for an accident to happen. So that's my justification, I suppose, for feeling like it's worth yeah. talking about it. What do you think? No, I agree. It's, it's just this, like... Yeah, I think you should talk about things like this, just for, like, safety's sake. I think so. And you, ha- has it made you feel uncomfortable or odd talking no. about something like illegal like that? And And also, you seem quite firm in your sort of decision-making that, well, I don't know, has it made it more attractive or more... Has it made drugs seem glorified or... No. ...heightened your curiosity about them? I think it's just increased my knowledge. Which is what you would hope at your kind of age, that that would... 
it would just be useful. It's interesting because it's kind of like a thing that people don't talk about that much, so then it becomes an interesting conversation to have without it being something that makes it glorified. And I think with teenagers, with young people, you have those sort of conversations about other things. You know, sex education, a big part of that is how to not get pregnant because you wouldn't want someone who was just having sex for the first time to end up pregnant at 16 or something. That would, yeah. you know, so it's part of it is, well, I'm not telling you it because I want you to go out and have sex. It's because yeah. I'm telling you it because I want you to know how to not have a baby, yeah. <laughs> not have a baby, you know. Uh, but I'd be interested, I, I wonder how other parents feel about this way of doing it and whether other parents think, no, that's really the wrong way to go about it. I wouldn't want to talk to my kids at all like that. Yeah. And that's kind of what Harry was saying, isn't it? He just thinks that parents basically want to say to them, you go off and do your thing and don't tell me about it. Yeah. Um, But that worries me. I mean, I don't expect you to tell us everything that you're doing over the next 10 years of your life, because I'm sure you won't, but... um, Just some of the important stuff. Yeah. And then if something goes wrong, then you feel like at least you can call your parents, because, you know... You don't have such a distant relationship that it's you know, it's not something you could ever pick up the phone and, and ring in an emergency. Yeah. I'm doing a bit more press on another radio station tomorrow, BBC Radio Leeds. Why Leeds? I sent out some information about the podcast to radio stations in cities that have big festivals in because I thought they might be interested in talking about it as festival season is starting but that'll be interesting to see how it's taken because the guy that's leads are just walking they're uh, doing it down the line from from uh, work down here but the guy doing the interview is a dad uh and i think he's about my age looking at his picture i googled him to see what he looked like yeah. uh so it'll be interesting how someone totally different who doesn't know me at all how yeah. they how they take it how they spin it I'm intrigued to see whether I get a grilling, you know. Uh, but it's, I'm pleased that it's starting a conversation in other places. So. Yeah. Have you told any of your friends about the podcast? No. Would you do, do you think? No. Why not? No, I just... Well, I think so. I'm at school, it wouldn't be long. Would you be embarrassed? Yep. That they might listen and yeah. somehow use it against you? Oh, yeah, definitely. So I won't be getting extra downloads courtesy of your friendship group then. Oh well. So next week, an American guest. Cool. A guy called Emmanuel Sverios. Mm-hmm. He's making a film called MDMA the Movie. So MDMA is a drug in ecstasy. And uh, he thinks it's a, a wonder drug. So he thinks it can be used for therapy and... Uh, helping people get over trauma and things like that and so we'll talk a bit about that and he also founded a, a, a charity in America called Dance Safe so keeping you know, people at festivals safe by letting them know more about drugs and how to, yeah. how to you know, not die from them. so he's an interesting character so we'll talk to him next week She's not there.